Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This is the story of Star Wars. You can read along with me in your book. You will know it is time to turn the page when you hear R2-D2 beep, like this. Let's begin now. And welcome to episode 101 of Full of Sith. I am not the Mike Pilot. I am Bobby Roberts. Filling in for the wonderful Mike Pilot with me is my venerable co-host, Brian Young. Say hi, Brian. Venerable is the word they used to describe Qui-Gon the first time. In all of the press materials, he was a venerable Jedi Knight, and that was it. Oh, well, that's a detail I'll file away. Joining us as well, (laughs) after a long, prolonged pursuit, we finally have... From the Comlink, from Star Wars Oxygen, from God knows how many other creative pursuits that you've probably known about, even if you didn't know you knew about them, Mr. David W. Collins. Hello. Hey, guys, and thanks so much for having me and for displaying incredible patience for uh, my stupid schedule this past fall. I'm actually rather embarrassed at how long it took me to to come on to Full of Sith because um, you guys are awesome. And uh, just wanted to make sure that we had plenty of time set aside so we could geek out and talk about all kinds of stuff today. Well, and that's uh, that's definitely a thing that we want to get in. I was super excited to finally get you, not only because I personally believe that Star Wars Oxygen is the best Star Wars podcast out there, but Star Wars Oxygen, while it is my favorite podcast, isn't the only thing you're doing right now. Tell us about the Comlink, sir. So yeah, J.C. Reifenberg, who is someone that I met through Star Wars, of course. We worked on a... Uh, a Kyle Newman directed little short called Return of Return of the Jedi. JC and I met. He works for Kevin Smith. He shot the thing and I did the audio and the music editing on it. And it ran before the 30th anniversary of Jedi at the Egyptian Theater, the big party and screening they had here in LA as part of uh, Entertainment Weekly's Cape Town Festival. And, and we just struck up this friendship. I started working with him and he's like, I've always wanted to do like a video YouTube show about Star Wars. And he just decided that we should try it. And we just started shooting. We just started shooting stuff and eventually turned into this idea of doing a YouTube podcast show. And uh, Kevin Smith offered to host it on his YouTube channel. And that was kind of a nice starting point for us because it, it gave us an opportunity to have a, a bit of a built-in audience and people just responded really well to it. And after doing about two or three months of that, we just moved to our own channel thecomlink.com. We've had some great guests on there. James Arnold Taylor and Sam Whitworth. Kevin's been on. And of course, Amy Ratcliffe writes all the copy, does all of the social media, and is just a huge part of the team. So really, it's JC, Amy, myself, and a 501st member named Rourke Dreher, who is the, one of the producers that uh, does thecomlink.com. And yeah, it's, it's been great. Check it out. The first question we ask of any guest is, do you remember your first experience with Star Wars? And if you don't remember the first experience, what is the first experience that you remember? Star Wars came out when I was too young to remember it, but it didn't come out after I was born. Star Wars always was. It just always existed in my consciousness. I think my first real memory of seeing it in theaters was the not even the release, but the re-release of The Empire Strikes Back, which would have been in like 81. But my friend had it on videotape. I don't know how he had a VCR copy of this, but he did. And every time I'd go over there, we would watch it. I must have watched it about a million times. I don't remember it. I mean, I remember it just being always there. And so when I learned about the space program and I learned about NASA, I remember being very disappointed when I found out there was no sound in space. You know, it's like, this isn't, this isn't as cool as Star Wars, you know. Probably my greatest memory is when my grandfather, I told us a little bit of this story on Star Wars Oxygen. My grandparents were visiting, and this was a hot Northern California July or August morning. 
And our whole family decided, well, it's so hot. Let's go sit in an air-conditioned movie theater. Let's go to the movies. I immediately got super excited because I said, well, great, well, we're going to go see Return of the Jedi. Because who doesn't go see a Star Wars movie if the option is given to go see one in a movie theater? And they said, no, 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 we've already seen that. And they all decided to go see Mr. Mom, which was a Michael Keaton movie. Do you remember that movie? Oh, yeah, I very much yeah. remember Mr. Mom. Everywhere yeah. on television was the shot of him putting the baby's ass up on the hand dryer in the bathroom. Yes, while working mom Terry Gar looks on like, oh, gosh. Yeah, with the big 80s glasses that she had. I threw a fit <laughs> when they said they wanted to go see it. Do you remember that poster of the Star Wars trilogy that said three reasons why they build movie theaters? Mm -hmm. That is absolutely how I felt in my childhood. <laughs> why on earth? This is what movie theaters are for, you guys. Clearly, I'm the only intelligent one in the family. My grandfather he said to my mom, you know what? Why don't you all go see Mr. Mom and I'll take David to go see Return of the Jedi. I'd already seen it three times and it took me a month to see it. So it was a hard earned visit to the theater the first time I saw it because on opening day, we drove past the theater. And my mom said, "Uh, uh, no way am I waiting in that line because in this small little theater in Vacaville, California, the line went all the way around the block so that the end of the line was getting confused with the front of the line. And so when I hear the phrase blockbuster, I always think of that visual because the block literally couldn't contain the line. So I had to wait. It probably wasn't even a month. It felt like a month. It was probably like two weeks. But going to see Jedi was so important to me. So my grandfather took me to see Jedi while the rest of the family went to go see Mr. Mom. Had a great time. And before that, once I knew that we were going to go see like the 12 o'clock show or whatever, I immediately went and got my Star Wars book, you know, that came with the listen along cassette where mm -hmm. R2-D2 beeped every time you were trying to turn a page. And I made my grandfather sit through that first as a precursor to going to see the genius that was Return of the Jedi. Good so Lord, your, your grandfather is absolutely a saint. There is no question in my mind. You made him sit and listen to your read along book? Yeah, and did, he did. Did you even let him see the pictures in the read along book or was it just he had to sit and listen to it while you clutched the book in your hand and stared at it? Oh, no, 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 no. I had the book and I was like pointing out the pictures. The tape was playing, but I was probably talking over it the entire time. <laughs> yeah. I, I have a similar story with that read-along book. The first Star Wars movie, actually the first movie I ever saw in a theater, period, was Return of the Jedi. But because I had essentially stolen the read-along book from the bookmobile for like the two or three months preceding my finally seeing it, I was reciting dialogue from the movie while it was happening during my first viewing of the movie. Alternately annoying and amusing my parents who were just trying to watch the movie for the first time. So maybe people haven't put two and two together. They don't realize necessarily that you were proxy on The Force Unleashed. Oh, yes. My onboard tactical computer suggests that this is the best time to attack. I am certain that I will finally fulfill my programming. One of the questions, because I've been doing a lot of Star Wars panels at cons, and I did two in the last few months with Sam Witwer also, and one of the questions I hear more than just about anything is, how does Force Unleashed fit? Is it going to continue to fit? And I'm wondering, like, do you compete with that question even still, or do people just not put two and two together with you as much as they do with Sam? First of all, no, they don't, they don't put it together as much with me as they do with Sam, and, and a lot of that is because Sam was kind of the first walking, talking, I look like a video game character, video game character. Before that, there wasn't a person that looked like Laura Croft, but Sam's face was the face of Starkiller. And that was a big deal when we cast him in 2006. And then we shot it in February 2007. Proxy's a droid and he's very processed and, you know, he's a little more svelte than I am. <laughs> people will recognize my voice or people will bring it up, you know, especially at Celebration. But Sam because of Smallville and Battlestar Galactica and all that, and because of his face, Sam has always called me and gone, you don't realize, and Lucasfilm doesn't realize, and people don't realize until they go to these cons, how popular The Force Unleashed is. You know, there was someone in Germany last year that met me. He took a picture with me, and then the next day he came back, and he gave me this hand-drawn piece of art with proxy on it, and he said, I stayed up all night drawing this. And so people go nuts over this stuff, but... Because it's a game, because it was kind of going on at the same time as the Clone Wars, it just didn't quite receive, I think, the same follow-up promotion. You know, The Force Unleashed happened and was enormous. The Force Unleashed 2 happened, but and this was stuff that we couldn't talk about back in 2010, 2011, but now that Disney owns the company, it's, it seems kind of irrelevant. But we didn't have a lot of time to develop that game, you know. They decided to move it into 2010 instead of 2011, and the game came out and it was, you know, we're all very proud of it, but it's very short. We set it up to do a third one, which we never got the opportunity to do. Will Disney do a third one? Will those characters come back? I mean, that's a great, great question. I just I, don't have the answers. 
It's kind of a well, peripheral expanded universe thing. And, and you sort of hit on the reason that we wanted to have you on for this specific episode, not only because you've already been involved with pieces of Star Wars that maybe don't necessarily fit into the larger whole anymore, but still are there and still are beloved. And that's why we wanted you to come on to the show today to talk about the Star Wars radio dramas, because those two are just waiting for people to trip over them, to discover them. They're sort of like the hidden Star Wars that if you just care to look, there is so many treasures for you to dig up and play with. We asked you what your first experience with Star Wars was before. Do you remember your first experience with the radio dramas, how you came to discover them and and dive into them yourself? The first time I discovered them was in the 90s when I was going to uh, the local video slash comic book store. I discovered Star Wars Insider for the first time. Mm. You know, and I discovered uh, the Tales of the Jedi and Dark Empire comics and the Timothy Zahn novels, like all of this stuff in the early 90s leading up to Shadows of the Empire in 96. That was really my focus because I was picking up the novels after the Heir to the Empire, the Thrawn trilogy. Then you had Trusit Bakura by Kathy Tires. And then you had the Jedi Academy trilogy coming out and you had the Tales of Mos Eisley Cantina. I was reading all of these. The Courtship of Princess Leia, which was rough, but hey, it gave us Dathomir, right? Like Mm. there were always these CD sets sitting on a shelf that as a student were out of my price range. They taunted me, you know, these Star Wars radio dramas. And I didn't get to hear them for a long time because I just thought, well, I don't want to spend the money on those. I want to keep going, which is funny because I ended up doing sound and things like that. But there were just so many other things, Star Wars, that I was looking at, including the video games. I mean, at that time, I was playing Dark Forces and TIE Fighter. So the radio dramas, I finally didn't get to listen to until a colleague of mine at LucasArts lent them to me. And this must have been in 2000. And I would listen to them on my commute. And that was the first time I ever heard it. It was like this historical archaeological artifact that just got dug up. And I get to hear Mark Hamill reinterpret Luke Skywalker all over again, not to mention John Lithgow and Perry King and like Anne Sachs and all these people playing these different characters and kind of discover these things that for whatever reason just didn't hit me at the time. I just missed them. But they're around for us to rediscover later. For me, the audio dramas are what turned me into an NPR nerd. I was flipping through the stations on my radio and found Star Wars on, and I'm like, what is this? And it was in 96 when Return of the Jedi was coming out. And so NPR replayed all of them. I never switched my station again. (laughs) Well, a large part of our conversation today is going to deal with what I think a lot of listeners are wondering about if they haven't already listened to the radio dramas is is how they differ. I want to ask you, what is it about the radio dramas that really stand out to you, especially as a voice actor yourself? Well, I love when they're different, when they kind of stray or they add scenes that aren't in the movie. Or they'll take a scene and they'll expand it. You don't have visuals to establish anything, right? So Mm. you've got a narrator, but the narrator's only there to just kind of set things up. And it's really more opening and closing credits. So the actors have to do all the narration, right? Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. when Luke is in the Wampa Cave, Luke has to do a lot of the work that the visuals would normally do. He has to go, oh, God. Oh, Oh, man, I'm stuck. Where am I? Oh, I must be in some kind of cave. What did Brian Daly do in order to kind of tell us that he's in danger? The dramatic device that he uses is brilliant. He decides to have Luke try and contact Han and say, Echo 3 to Echo 7. Echo 3 to Echo 7. Come in, Han. Han? Han, I was attacked by a wampa. I'm, I'm in its cave. I don't know where. Han, do you, do you copy? He's trying to describe it to Han because Han can't see where he's at. Neither can the listener, right? Because all we have to go by is the audio. So action set pieces have to be kind of explained by the hero as they're happening. Oh, my lightsaber's just out of reach. I can't reach it. The Jedi and his lightsaber. The lightsaber and the Jedi, the two are one. The Force binds us. The Force calls my lightsaber to me. The Force... My lightsaber. To me! Got it! Han, I got myself down, but. That just gives us more performance from the actors that 
we don't get from the movies. The mm. movies do work in so many different ways. Well, and, and, the, and there's a bit of a, an art to it as well. And he might recognize his name from that Han Solo trilogy back right. when the expanded universe didn't even have a name. It wasn't even called the expanded universe. It was just Star Wars books. Brian Daly had to be really tricky about how to get essentially stage directions into the mouths of the characters as dialogue and not have it come off too hokey, not have it call too much attention to itself. Um, not to say that he succeeds 100% of the time. There's no, like the beginning of Return of the Jedi where it's kind of like the C-3PO power hour. Yeah, most definitely. <laughs> So and that's a real challenge, right? If you're writing this, you're like, well, what makes the Jabba's palace sequence great? It's all of the crazy creatures and visuals. I mean, they learned this lesson in spades in the holiday special, right? If you don't have language to draw on. You, you know, yeah. Like, Return of the Jedi must have been the hardest to translate. Well, I believe there was a, a bit of a problem there in that Brian Daly's health was failing. I was going to say, yeah, it was much later. I mean, it did come out in like 96 Mm-hmm. And he passed away right after they finished recording, but well before it came out. Yeah. As a matter of fact, um, if you buy the giant box set, I still believe it's available. You can get a, a huge box set of the entire uh, Star Wars radio drama trilogy. There is a, a special goodbye that the cast recorded for Brian Daly, sort of a thank you for working on this trilogy for us and giving us an opportunity to to play these characters, to reinterpret these characters. So it's very bittersweet if you go back and you listen to that box set and you listen to uh, all the actors saying thank you to Brian Daly, not knowing that it really was goodbye. It's a bit of a downer, but it's also uplifting in that he did get the propers that he deserved for contributing to Star Wars in that way. I mean, the radio dramas weren't like, let's all hang out in a closet and try and bang this out for public radio. Like, the radio dramas are still the only bit of Star Wars directed by an Academy Award winning director. Interesting bit of trivia. Yes, John Madden. John Madden. Yeah, yeah. Guy who won gold for Shakespeare in Love uh, directed Empire and Star Wars. Wow. One of the things I really liked and I wanted to talk to you guys about is Star Wars and Empire. They turned up the lethality of the Empire, especially with the opening of Empire Strikes Back, where you're hearing Captain Nira's crew just get shot down. And Imperial TIE Fighters, must be 20 of them. Renegade Flight, this is Renegade Leader. Prepare to engage the TIE Fighters. Transport ships go into hyperdrive as soon this as you're clear. This is Renegade 3, boss. There's another bunch of them dead ahead in our course. They're breaking for attack. This is Renegade 2, more TIEs approaching from Sector 8. They're all over the place. Here they come. Renegade 3, 4, 5, and 6. Get up and clear the way for the transports. The rest of you protect the convoy. Transports run for it. Maximum acceleration. All right, Renegade Flight. Hit him. Watch it, Renegade 2. See him. On your tail, Renegade 7. Scissor right. Scissor right. Here I come. Get him off me. God, a boss, we can't stop and there are too many. Boston just got Ketko. Protect the transports. The transports have to get through. Boss, they're all over us. They just got transport number two. I'm hit. Lost both port side engines. Keep going. This is Renegade 3. There are four TIE Fighters on me. Help me, somebody. I can't shake them. Ah! Renegade 3. Gone, boss. No way out. They're all around us. That scene, it really does change the, the nature of Echo Base in general. I mean, they're starving. They don't have any equipment. It makes the Empire just feel so like lethal, like you said. And they do that same thing in Star Wars. And the Star Wars radio drama... I believe it's five hours long in total. (laughs) So they've added three hours of content, and the bulk of that content is essentially a prequel to Star Wars. So some of it takes place on Tatooine with Luke, and some of it is centered on Princess Leia's adventures. As a matter of fact, Princess Leia becomes a completely different character. You still have the elements as Carrie Fisher portrayed them, but Anne Sachs's Princess Leia is fairly different from Carrie Fisher's Princess Leia in more than a few ways. One of the things I really loved are all of her interactions with Lord Tyon, who's a character that we get introduced to in the audio dramas. It adds like a tragedy and a weight to Leia that I didn't really feel like was there. At present, I'm only a minor nobleman from a lesser house. Soon... I shall be in one of the positions of highest authority in the Empire. As far as I can tell, you're little more than an errand boy for the Grand Moff Tarkin. The project we're completing will change all that. By serving Tarkin, I'll win an exalted rank for myself. And what is this project that's supposed to persuade me to marry you? Well, it's still classified. 
And come back when it's unclassified. <laughs> Do you think I'm afraid to break a rule now and then? Project, as I said, is nearly complete, and the next convoy from Governor Tarkin's headquarters will transfer the plans to the Imperial vaults. Then amaze us with your confidences. <laughs> We're waiting. The Empire has built a battle station. Surely there's nothing new about a space fortress? I don't mean a mere orbital gun platform, Your Majesty. This is a machine of war such as the universe has never known. It's colossal, the size of a class four moon, and it possesses firepower unequaled in the history of warfare. And this, this flying pillbox is going to make you a member of the Imperial elite? More than a pillbox, Princess. It boasts a prime weapon capable of destroying entire planets. Entire planets? Mm -hmm. Henceforth, the Emperor will single out a source of trouble, and Lord Tarkin and those of us who serve him will simply snuff that trouble out of existence. But... But this is unthinkable. It's progress. A new order is emerging, and I intend to be among those who lead it. Your daughter can share it with me, and Alderaan can prosper from it. Blood and death. Leia, I think From an this... empire that will rule unchallenged because of that battle station. A galaxy of slaves. Is that what you think I want? Leia, calm yourself. I'm offering you a place in the empire, Leia. And yes, a galaxy at your feet. An empire of oppression? Under a death star that Leia, will destroy... Death star? How did you know that The name? subject was marriage, Lord Tyon. I find your proposal... How did you know that code name? I didn't mention it. I used no code name. You I... did. I heard you. Death Star. She doesn't do anything exactly like Carrie Fisher did. Everything is different. You know, a lot of the iconic scenes that you think of between Han and Leia, especially in Empire, they're a completely different interpretation, but they're totally valid interpretations that work. I thought you said you had decided to stay with the Rebellion. I thought you were going to help us here on Hoth. Well, that bounty hunter we ran into on Ward Mantell, he changed my mind. I've got to settle this thing with Jabba the Hutt. I'm not going to be any good to the Rebellion or anyone else until I do. We need you here, Han. We need? The Rebel Alliance. Why don't you stop talking for the Alliance and talk for yourself for once? What about you need, Leia? I don't have the slightest idea what you're talking about. I guess you probably don't at that. Looks like you never will, huh? And what precisely is it that I'm supposed to know, oh source of wisdom? Oh, come on. When are you going to stop playing games? You want me to stay because of the way you feel about me? Yes. I feel that you're a great help to the Alliance. If it wasn't for you, uh, we'd never have got... Uh, we both know what I'm talking about. How come it's so hard for you to admit it? Han... Uh -huh. Has anybody ever mentioned anything to you about your ego problem? Come on. You look so pretty when you're blushing. You're imagining things. Am I, Leia? Then why'd you call me back? Afraid I was going to leave without giving you a goodbye kiss? You? Me. I'd sooner kiss a Wookiee. Well, I can arrange that, but you better move fast. Goodbye. Goodbye. You could use a good kiss. Let us all in on it, Princess. Doesn't it ever get boring up there on that pedestal? Oh. Oh. It's got a much different tone than the movie, but it works beautifully, and it goes to the, the versatility of the material, the versatility of Brian Daly's writing, but specifically the actors they had play Han and Leia. And it took me a while to get used to Han, though. I much prefer David's Han. Oh, that's nice. Oh, you know, I was actually going to talk about Perry King for a second because he is so different. And it's actually kind of admirable that he just decided to go and do his own thing. I mean, it's a really gutsy thing, especially with how big of a star Harrison Ford is. There's something about those two and their chemistry that is very, very different. And I mean, going back to Ann Sachs, too, I mean, Carrie Fisher was given a really tough job on Empire. She ended up coming across as pretty harsh in the movies. And so there is this open conflict that Irvin Kirshner called it between the two that is supposed to be a game, but it was so harsh to some in Empire. But it is very different, you know, and there's something about 
Ann Sachs that has a different kind of sensual voice to her. Both both her and Carrie Fisher have that kind of smoky voice, but Ann Sachs just has a softer take on the character in, in certain scenes. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the added content in the radio drama was eaten up by fans at the time, specifically because it was their only chance to experience deleted scenes that they had only heard about, and there they were in audio version, and you could just sort of fill in the blanks with your own imagination as you were well, listening to them play out. And- Biggs talking about the Empire and the fact that Biggs and Luke get into a fight over Luke not joining so he can then defect and become part of the rebellion. Luke, I didn't... I didn't come home just for a visit. If I don't come back, I wanted somebody to know. What? Well, know what? Honestly, Biggs, will you stop being so secretive? Luke, I made some... I made some friends at the Academy. Yeah? And one of them will be on the Rand Ecliptic with me. At our first port of call in the inner systems, we're going to jump ship and join the Rebel Alliance. But that's crazy! You could wander around forever trying to find them. Look, the Empire can't even find Well, them. if we don't find the Rebels, then we're going to do what we can on our own. I'm not hanging around to get drafted into the Imperial Starfleet. The Rebellion's spreading Luke, and I want to be on the side I believe in. Yeah, and I'm stuck here. But... I thought you were going to the Academy next week. I had to cancel my application. You know, the sand people acting up again. Come on, Luke! Your uncle could hold off a whole Tuscan raiding party with one blaster. One of these days, buddy, you've got to separate what seems important from what is. But the farm's just about to start paying off. Look, Uncle Owen needs me for one more season. Biggs, I can't just run out on him and Aunt Baru now. Uncle Owen, Aunt Baru, first it's sand people, now it's the crop. Meanwhile, your application's been canceled, Luke. Canceled! Luke, listen to me. Your uncle uses that I fed you and brought you up line to keep you here. Can't you see that? Biggs, my aunt and uncle are the only family I've got. They're all I've got. I don't care what you or anybody else thinks about me. I can't let anything happen to those Luke, two. Luke, I didn't I'll mean to I'll go on. Find a... your rebellion. You don't think I'd like to leave? You think I like staying behind? No, I never thought that, Luke. Well, that's how it sounded. Oh, here, I'll let you off by the power station. But I think the best example of that comes with Leia, played by Anne Sachs, and Darth Vader, played by Brock Peters, which uh, some sci-fi fans in the in the crowd will remember as being uh, a very frequent guest star on Star Trek, Star Trek The Next Generation. He was Joseph Sisko on Deep Space Nine. He was Captain Sisko's father. There you go. And he plays Darth Vader in a very interesting way. He definitely does not play it the same way that James Earl Jones did. He seems sort of snootier. Seems just a little bit snobbier, but there's a scene. Angrier, too. Yeah, and, and angry. He is quick to anger, man. He gets imposing. And the scene in which that crystallizes the most is the torture room scene. Like, in the movie, you know, Carrie Fisher's eyes go wide as saucers, and then the door slams down, and we are left to imagine what sort of horrible things are going on. The radio drama leaves us in there, and it gets harsh. What's that, Vader? This machine? It is called an interrogation device. But there are those who call it other things. A torture robot. This violates every rule of law. The in law every no gallop. longer applies to you. You're a rebel, and you've refused your one chance for mercy. And now, Your Highness, we shall discuss the location of your hidden rebel base. Vader, keep that away from me. The injection arm is primed. Now tell me. Where is the rebel fortress? I don't know what you mean. So be it. No. No. Let go. You stop that. Hold still, you little fool. There is no escape. No. No. Listen to my voice. You are now in great pain. Excruciating pain. Pain. The universe of it. Your world is nothing but pain. Tell me what I wish to know. Tell me what I wish to know. Where are the plans? Your skin is a fire. You're burning. Your nerve endings are in flames. Your flesh is being torn apart! Make it stop! Please make it stop! I will when you've told me where the plans are. You're dying in torment! 
Where are the Death Star plans? Where is the Rebel Fortress? There are only seconds left. Your heart is about to burst, and the breath of life is nearly gone. You must! Stop! Didn't they shoot a scene with Carrie Fisher that got cut? I vaguely remember hearing that she was upside down. I cannot imagine that if someone hung Carrie Fisher upside down for more than five minutes at a time that we would not have heard about it by now. Well, she would have yeah. popped off about that at some point, I'm but certain. But I thought she did. That's what. That's why I'm just sitting here going, yeah. God. Well, I mean, I think the radio dramas ended up sort of in their own way becoming a source for a lot of those playground rumors that they we did. used to That's have. what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah, they did. I think this is exactly where a lot of these things came from, you know? Yeah. There's so many people who swear they saw the big scenes in the movie theater, and I really do think it's the audience dramas hey I couldn't find those macro binoculars anywhere never mind Wendy buckle up hey what are you doing standing in for bigs brace yourself uh, here we go one run down the back stretch Skywalker whenever you're ready hey wait a minute you and fix are in the bottleneck together count me out well, jump uh, call it even wait. with me Skywalker we'll let her rip yeah. Okay, hit it! Oh. Look out! Will you shut up and keep... St- oh, no, you distracted me, Wendy. Now uh, Fixer's got the lead. You let him keep it. I want to live. How does my afterblast feel, Luke? <laughs> Too narrow to get past him. Whatever you do, don't go for altitude. Don't go for altitude. The crosswinds will smash us right into the canyon wall. Just make yourself comfortable back there, far boy. It'll all be over in a minute. Yeah, that's what you think. Nothing compares to the sound work in Star Wars and in these radio dramas, at least that I've heard. I mean, I talked to a friend of mine who was in negotiations with one of the guys at Highbridge to do a uh, radio drama thing. And the Star Wars Brian Daly radio dramas came up and it was mentioned by somebody that they spent months mixing no one mixes for months anymore. <laughs> you, just, you don't have that kind. I mean, the budget on these things must have been insane. Yeah, well, which is interesting because the rights to them were a buck. George Lucas yeah. allowed the rights to be sold to USC, and that's how NPR got a hold of them. They were in partnership with USC's radio program. And for the longest time, back when the old rules of canon were around, anything that happened in the radio dramas that was not contradicted by a film superseded anything that happened in the books from what i understand now all those rules of canon have been sort of tossed out so it doesn't quite matter and the radio dramas themselves i believe aren't looked at in that same way but i mean if you don't really care all that much about canon there's still a lot of really fun stuff to look at for example like we were talking about how leia's role is greatly expanded and greatly deepened han solo's performance via perry king becomes its own weird interesting a little more overtly comical thing but even characters like Uncle Owen and Aunt Beru and Grand Moff Tarkin end up getting some extra depth and shading. Like there's an entire subplot about Tarkin mulling over the idea of using the Death Star to stage a coup. This battle station has become the very source of the Empire's power. Not even the Imperial Starfleet could stand against us. And all of that power lies at your command. You are close to treason, Motti. Is it treason to point out that you could demand a position of authority second only to that of the Emperor? I would not care to have the Emperor as my enemy. But command of the Death Star makes you his equal. You could share dominion of the galaxy. (sighs) With you at my right hand. I'm your willing servant, Governor Tarkin. And then, of course, there's Lord Vader to consider. Yes, formidable as he is... The Dark Lord of the Sith is hardly an insurmountable problem. You think not? The personnel of this battle station owe their allegiance to you. Lord Vader, for all his superstitious trickery, can be dealt with. Do not forget that you wield the ultimate power. I shall consider what you've said, Motti. The thing I love about those story moments like that, it sends your mind spinning in different directions of what Star Wars could be or what might have been going. And I think at its best, that's what expanded universe kind of stuff does. Speaking of uh, Grand Moff Tarkin, if you, when you listen to the radio dramas, that voice sounds somewhat familiar, especially if you're a, a child of the late 70s, or early 80s. He was the snooty guy that ran the bar above Cheers. 
My favorite is uh, the guy who does Obi-Wan Kenobi was the Nazi dentist in the adaptation of Kurt Vonnegut's Mother Night. <laughs> yeah, Bernard Baird. You guys want to talk about the difference between uh, what Alec Guinness was doing as Obi-Wan Kenobi and uh, what Bernard Bunny Barons did? I always thought that Alec Guinness was very presentational. I remember that Bernard was very presentational. He was kind of going for a similar thing, but it almost seemed... Almost like he was more aware that he was on microphone somehow. And actually, the the formality of it kind of gets in the way of Obi-Wan for me. Although, from a certain point of view, it might actually make the character a little bit deeper than normal because you fundamentally understand that uh, Obi-Wan is, at his core, a little bit full of crap. And I think that comes out a little bit more in Bernard Barron's performance. Like, there are sort of condescending things that he gets into in the radio drama that Alec Guinness never quite got. Alec Guinness was always kindly friendly. and patient yeah. yeah, and friendly. And Bernard Behrens is not above sticking it to both Luke and Han for being dumber than he is. You see, Luke, you can do it. You parried all three shots by trusting your feelings. Oh, uh, yeah? Well, I call it luck. In my experience, Captain Solo, there is no such thing as mere luck. It's as good a faith as any old man. Luck and money. Ah, yes. Wealth. I'd forgotten how important that is to you. <laughs> well, don't knock it. If me and Chewie weren't hard up for it, you two and the droids would still be playing tag with the stormtroopers back on Tatooine. As it is, you get where you want to go, and we clear our debts. <laughs> You're quite a paradox, Captain Solo. You prize above everything else the cardinal freedom of star travel, yet you are held back from it by something as trifling as money. <laughs> Come to think of it, there are entire worlds in just that same predicament. <laughs> you said it, Chewie. So money's trifling, huh? Well, just you try getting along without any. Oh, but I do. Huh? Have you ever seen a credit come into or leave my hand? I haven't had any and haven't missed it in, oh, quite some years now. And wanted for nothing. No, well... <laughs> well, all right, so the kid there paid your way, but you wouldn't have gotten any place if he hadn't come up with the cash. Well, perhaps I'm, uh, lucky? <laughs> what am I doing arguing with an old coot like you? <laughs> you haven't even got the price of a meal. <laughs> anyway, we're coming up on Alderaan. He's a little removed from the scene, especially if you compare him to Mark Hamill and Perry King, who are so casual. I have to be honest, the first time I heard Perry King, I, I didn't like it. I was like, this isn't Han Solo. And I listened to it now, and I actually, it, it's really grown it, on over the years. It took me, that first episode he was in, I was like, wow, how is that Han Solo? And then by the second one, it was just, that's how he sounded. And then it, it remains consistent and builds through them. Going back to Empire versus Jedi, right? If you look at the movies, what Irvin Kirshner did versus what uh, Richard Marquand did. Everyone knows that Harrison Ford really wanted to be killed off or he didn't think his character should be around anymore. He felt like the character arc wasn't going to go anywhere. So when he gets kind of super softy, it doesn't really, to some, ring true. Well, the way that Perry King plays it, actually, I feel like kind of makes the whole that whole thing make more sense. Like he's just... He's aloof, but in like a, a sarcastic kind of way. And I think one of the things, too, is that actually Brian Daly with Perry King smoothed out that difference between Empire Han and Jedi Han. That's, yeah, that's what I mean. Um, yeah. In, yeah. in the beginning of Empire, in the radio drama, you get the idea that Han wants to stay. And in the movie, it's just like, hey, guys, I'm out of here. And they even do that in uh, the Star Wars radio drama where Han is basically laughing at the rebellion while he's packing up his money. Like, I'm right. out of here. You guys are suckers. The closest you get to seeing that maybe he might turn it around, that maybe it's sort of gnawing at him a little, is like that look from Chewie to Han. And what are you looking at? In the radio drama, there's an entire conversation with Leia in a bathroom <laughs> over Luke's fate. Hey, you, you see a towel around here somewhere? Oh, my shirt will do. John, are you sure you won't reconsider or uh, join us? Great, now you. Look, forget about me. I've made my decision. You want to do somebody a favor? Luke's going to volunteer to fly a fighter. Luke? Go talk him out of it. Go save his life. I don't need to. Luke's made the right decision. What about you? I've had my fill of playing hero, thanks. It's a sucker's game. That's your final word? You better go say goodbye to Luke, princess. That right decision's gonna be the last one he ever makes. 
there are little bits of uh, of shading to Han Solo's character that work a little bit better with Perry King. But as yeah. you said, David, the the flip is that uh, he ends up coming off more traditionally smug action movie star. Although I do believe we can all agree that the one main performance in the radio dramas that really doesn't hold a candle at all or even have too many of its own merits in relation to the original performances we're used to from film is John Lithgow's Yoda. Uh, I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. John, oh, and I'm a huge John Lithgow fan. So but. am I. It's, it's hard to argue against that man's talent and skill. Like He is a legitimately great actor and always has been, except for the time he played Yoda in The <laughs> Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi. <laughs> totally. And it's it's almost like he he honed in on the Grover and didn't realize that it was just an affectation that Frank Oz applied to present old Jedi. So he made a meal out of that vocal tone. Again, maybe just because it's, you know, you're in front of a microphone and it's very different. You know, I'm trying to be Yoda here, you know, as opposed to just like giving a great performance. Like, I mean, on the goofy stuff, it kind of works. Ben, Ben, I can be a Jedi. Ben, tell him I'm ready. Ready are you? Loud, unthinking youngster are you? What know you of red But Ben told me to come to you so that I could learn- For 800 years have I trained Jedi. My own counsel will I keep on who is to be trained. Yoda, master. Hmm? I, I don't mean to sound- No afraid. right have you to call me by that word. You have not earned it. A Jedi must have the deepest commitment. Hmm? The most serious mind? Oh, how can I convince you? Oh, Obi-Wan. A long time have I watched this one. All his life has he looked away to the future, to the horizon. Never his mind on where he was. Oh. What was he doing? What were you doing, eh, boy? Uh, huh? Oh, oh hey, listen, I didn't see it like that. Maybe you're right. But Yoda, I never had anyone to teach me any different. And so you dreamt of adventure, eh? Excitement, eh? A Jedi craves not these things. Reckless are you, son of Skywalker! So was I, if you remember, Master. He's too old. There's an interview that he just did recently. Or not so much an interview, but I think it was like a Q&A session at either uh, a book signing uh, or some arts event. And someone actually brought up the fact that he was Yoda in the radio dramas. And a lot of people were surprised, as, as obviously they would be, because I don't think a lot of people even know that Star Wars ever had radio dramas or that people still even do them. If I remember correctly, during that Q&A, he basically admitted that he watched Empire Strikes Back and was like, oh, so Yoda talk like this and just did all of his lines like that. Like for him, it was just a fun thing to do and he was really happy to do it. But I don't think he put too much thought into how the performance could sound, should but, sound, and and how it would work with Mark Hamill. So not only did Mark Hamill have to do so much heavy lifting on that swamp set in 1979 and 1980 to make everything come to life, but he had to do even more heavy lifting in the sound booth trying to make what John Lithgow was telling him sound even remotely uh, compelling. I don't really know, even though I heard that it took months to mix this stuff, which doesn't surprise me on analog tape with all the edits they had to do and all the sound effects. And I don't know how long John Lithgow was in the booth. When we do in video games and in voiceover, voiceover is so fast. It's so immediate. Someone Mm -hmm. comes in, they grab their water or their tea or whatever. Oftentimes they're sight reading. They record it and they're done. They're out. And the more celebrity that they are, they're probably agreeing to do it for something that is less than what they normally get or whatever. And so they don't, maybe they don't take it as seriously. It makes me wonder how long Ed Asner and Ed Begley Jr. were in there. Though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because they were a job of the hut and Boba Fett, which seems like the biggest stunt casting for no apparent reason ever. <laughs> well, I mean, Ed Begley Jr. as Boba Fett actually works pretty decently. Come on, bounty hunter. You didn't come here just to stare. I've beaten you so long beating me. You? Raider captured us. Jabba's got us. All you did was fetch and carry. Tomorrow I'll collect another bounty and you'll be dead. I've bargained with Jabba before. Don't worry about me. What about you? You still Jabba's little errand boy? Watch your mouth, Solo. I risked my tail to get you here. (laughs) Joey, I think you're right. We struck a nerve. I bet he's not as cocky as he wants people to think. In fact, he sounds just a little nervous to me. Are you nervous, Fett? Worried that we'll get out of this hole and track you down? (laughs) I'm going to enjoy watching you die. 
Like That's it, a hard one to mess up, though. It is, yeah. You just get all gravelly with it. You turn into Ken Kniff from Connecticut from the Eminem albums, and you can basically be Boba Fett if you apply the right processing. One thing I'm curious uh, about how you guys felt is that in the Return of the Jedi one, there was actually one scene that I was actually really kind of happy about, and it was a scene between Han and Leia. In the movie Return of the Jedi, they don't really get a lot of time to just stop and discuss what's going on. And Daly approached the question that was on everybody's mind the most, but George Lucas ignored. And that was how Han felt about the whole, like, I love you, I know thing. You're welcome, Han. Huh? Just making it easy for you. You are sitting there trying to figure out a way to thank me, aren't you? Oh, uh, I was getting to it. I was getting to it. And? Not a bad rescue for a princess. Compared to yours, you mean? How well planned the Death Star foray was, for instance. Well, you're not in that detention cell anymore, are you? You're not in that carbonite slab anymore, are you? All right, all right. And while you're replying in kind, what about the last thing I said to you in Cloud City? Just before Vader froze you? Well, a lot of that's kind of blurry, Leah. Never mind. It'll come back to you. Uh, it looks like we're about ready for the jump to hyperspace. Well, I'm sure you can handle that. So if you'll excuse me, Captain, I'm gonna go find some clothes that don't require a cabaret permit. Huh? Hey, uh, Leah? Huh? Are you, uh, gonna throw those ones away? We'll see. Do either of you have like a specific scene, like when you think radio dramas, you think of that sequence? Anytime that you're able to flesh out any of these characters in a different way, because you're, you're living in a scene a little bit more than you normally do. I felt that the scenes that they actually shot on set with Biggs and, and Mark Hamill, uh, Garrett Hagan and all that weren't great scenes. You know, it's like, are they drunk? Are they not drunk? That sort of thing. But the way that they played <laughs> in the radio be? <laughs> The way that stuff played in the radio drama was actually really compelling and, and just made Luke's upset make a lot more sense. And anytime you're learning something more about the movie, because one of the brilliant things about the movie is that you know that this is an argument that Luke has been having with his uncle for a long time. And now you kind of understand sort of the social pressure that he's under. You will kind of understand where he, where he comes from. And it's not just American graffiti in space. It feels a little bit better. But in Empire... Really, it is kind of the echo base stuff. I feel like that is the strongest part of Empire for me. I love the Imperial officers talking to each other as well. You know, I don't know, Lord Vader's really looking for the Skywalker guy, you know. I love those kind of scenes that, that flesh it out a little bit more and give you a little bit more of the backstory. But you know what's really curious is that for me, the, the beginning of the sort of the prequel New Hope stuff didn't really resonate with me the first time I listened to it. Yeah. Felt like, yeah, I felt like it was a little like expository in a weird way. Like it was just kind of. You, you were know, waiting for the movie to start. I was waiting for the movie to start and I wanted to live deeper in the movie. I honestly think that that's because I think I was frustrated with yet another version of how the Death Star plans were obtained. Yeah, because this was after Dark Forces, right? It was after Dark Forces that and it happened in X-Wing as well. There's all kinds of missions you get sent on in X-Wing. And then, of course, Dark Forces where Kyle Katarn steals it. I would not be surprised if we get more of those. I would not be surprised if that's where Rebels is heading. Uh, you know, it was one of those things that uh, I got into them in about 96, and that was sort of when I was tuning out of the Expanded Universe. Like, you know, when they killed Chewie, I just kind of checked out. <laughs> the video games, I never really put any stock in. I, I guess maybe on that specific point, I just approached it that there's so many different sources for it which one am I going to trust? And the audio drama seemed like the most reliable source. Do you have a, uh, a specific scene or sequence that when you think radio drama, you're like that? That is why people should for, listen to the radio dramas. For me, like there's two scenes that I mm -hmm. love more than all the other scenes. And the first one, chronologically, like I said, was Tyon's murder. Yeah. That played so well for me that I was just like terrified. And it's like, how is Princess Leia going to hide a body with Bail Organa? It felt so much like a Hitchcock movie more than Star Wars. And I don't know, anybody who talks to me for more than 10 minutes knows that if it's got like that Hitchcock feel to it, I'm going to be in. And the other one is the opening of Empire. Because you turn it on and you're expecting Vader to send out his probes and there you go. But 
it starts before then. It starts in a really unexpected place and it ends tragically and it builds up so much of that danger of the Empire. Jedi is a little hard, especially now listening to it again, Mm -hmm. because it plays down all the stuff I love about the movie now. I think that they did not understand at that point and they couldn't have understood at that point. Jedi was supposed to make you feel like Luke could turn to the dark side. And there's none of that in the audio drama at all. Yeah. And no. Jedi is also where they finally weren't able to get Mark Hamill to do the voice. So they had to bring someone in named Joshua Farden, who did a fairly decent job as Luke Skywalker. Like, you forget that he's not Mark Hamill by, like, the second episode. What am I doing? I've read the instructions a dozen times. And a dozen times I've failed. Always with you, it cannot be done. Master Yoda, can I forget so soon? I don't need this. R2, hand me the superconductor. And now the power cell. And the crystals. There. It's done. Try not. Do or do not. There is no try. Here it goes. All right. I'm ready. But yeah, on Return of the Jedi, both Mark Hamill and Billy Dee Williams have to bail out. Another weird casting. We were talking about <laughs> we're talking about Ed Begley as Boba Fett. Ari Gross played Lando Calrissian in Return of the Jedi. I, I want you to take the Falcon on this mission. What? I mean it. You need all the help you can get, and she's the fastest ship in the fleet. Thanks, Han. I know what she means to you, old buddy. Take good care of her. She, uh... She won't get a scratch, all right? Right. I got your promise. Not a scratch. The Falcon used to be mine, remember? I've flown that hunk of junk through more tough spots than you have. Well, this one will be the toughest, Linda. Hey, what do I look like? I'm fresh off a moisture farm? I didn't say that. We'll be inside the Death Star and blow the reactor before the Empire even realizes we're there. Assuming you don't mess up. So, did you get going, you pirate? Clear skies, Linda. Thanks, Tony. Han, good luck. It works in its own way. I sort of think of him as not Lando. I have a hard time picturing Lando Calrissian. I end up picturing this weird sort of poorly drawn version of Lando, like a, a bad draftsman in an early Marvel comic had Lando described to him and he sort of drew it. And that's the mental picture I have in my head when and hearing Ari Gross do Lando Calrissian in Return of the Jedi. It's not bad. Again, it's just very weird. That performance specifically, it just seemed like he blended in with Han at times or with Luke at times. And I was just like, wait, who's talking again? (laughs) Yeah, it was hard to distinguish between some of them at that point. You had a lot of white guys occupying the same sort of vocal register. And it it got a little bit hard with all the chaos to sort of discern who was who in in what area and what sequence and what segment. My favorite radio drama sequence actually is in the Empire Strikes Back radio drama. It happens after Han goes out and finds Luke and he cuts open the Tauntaun and and he builds a shelter. We actually go inside the shelter with uh, Luke and Han and spend the night with them. And they have a discussion about their friendship. I can't feel my legs. I'm numb. You're going to be okay. There's not a lot more I can do for you with the medicate. But they'll put you through nerve therapy, you know, float you in a regenerative tank, and you'll be as good as new. Too bad the nearest one's a couple of kilometers away through a blizzard. No more talking like that. You're going to make it, you hear? What happened to your face? You look like you walked into a rotor blade. Oh, it's a wampa. Ice creature jumped me on the ridge and killed my tauntaun. How very rude, as three P.O. would say. (laughs) I hope you killed it right there. That seemed like the right thing to do at the time. Smells so bad in here. <laughs> you, you spent a little time inside my Tauntaun while I was having a house raising party. Well, I guess you can cancel all my social engagements for the evening. Oh, so what's your excuse this time? Huh? Huh? What? Coming out after me. I guess you can't claim it was the money this time. Well, I'll figure something out, Luke. 
Like I always just assumed that Luke was unconscious, like he was going to die. Mm-hmm. And then here he is like, do, 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 just having a, you know, striking up a conversation. How's the Tauntaun? Oh, you know, <laughs> but, but they did. I mean, Daly did try to, I mean, radio works best when you've got two people talking to each other. True. So it makes sense why he, he brought Luke back out of that. But to have Luke and have Mark Hamill play it very well, mm-hmm. that he knows he's going to die because they're not going to get rescued and he's already in bad shape. It worked very well for me. Yeah, like that added an aspect to Luke Skywalker's character that I don't know has actually been touched on either before or since. Like hearing Luke Skywalker having to tell Han Solo to stop being idealistic and it actually fits with his character somehow. Like that was a nifty bit of both writing and acting. You know, in general, they did a great job at giving a sense of space to everybody when people are calling out in the distance you know it doesn't sound like everyone's on mic all the time it actually sounds like calling to each other in the other side of a room or you have a bunch of people talking in a room it was just so well done from a sonic point of view it's probably one of the best sounding radio dramas of all time you know and that's you really get a sense of space in every scene Mm -hmm. when you're actually reading these things you're you're staring at a piece of paper and you're in a, a booth uh, sometimes you're, if you're lucky, you're with other actors, but most of the time you're by yourself. You're, you got a microphone in front of you and it takes this tremendous amount of imagination. It's just totally chilling. But I love it when there's multiple people, uh, in a scene and they're talking to each other and they kind of understand a sense of space between each other because it's, it's always a pet peeve of mine in, in, uh, video games in particular, they'll be kind of talking to each other, but there's a disconnect between how far away the actual characters are from each other and how they're actually reading it. And here they re- you really kind of understand if someone's walking down a hall, mm. you know, or someone's sitting in a room and you hear the room and you don't hear that kind of low frequency kind of proximity effect of the microphone on everybody all the time. And it's you know. weird how they'll do transitions too. like in the scene where Hans like General Rykan, I got to go. They've got one set of room tone and background noise for the control center. And then they walk into the hallway and it, it's consistent. Mm-hmm. No, yeah, they, they keep all that stuff in mind. The musical transitions as well. The way they're using John Williams's music in ways that that music was not composed for. I can't believe I've glossed over it until now, but both the trash compactor sequence in Star Wars and the Death Star run, both of those are also really good examples of what the the radio drama medium can be. I feel even more sort of threatened by those walls closing in in the audio drama than I do actually watching them close in. Like when you're watching the movie, you're worried that Mark Hamill is going to have his pretty little face smashed into jelly and that's disturbing. When you're hearing the radio drama, it feels like the walls are closing in on you. What's that? Whatever it was that had me in the next, it just let go of me and disappeared. Oh, that booming sound must have scared it. But I don't understand what's going on. I got a very bad feeling about this. Oh. The walls. They're moving. They're closing. I don't believe this. We're inside a compactor. They'll be crushed. Try and brace the walls or something. Hey, wait a minute. Get that pipe over no, there. Over there. And that puts you in the scene with them in a way that the film can't get at. Yeah, definitely. So uh, final thoughts on the on the radio dramas, guys? The radio dramas to me were almost like yet another find from something back in the day that I just loved. What's interesting is how much I referenced the radio dramas when we were doing Smuggler's Gambit. Yeah. With Kyle Newman and everybody else. And especially, you know, all the work that that we were doing in sound effects and music, you know, that uh, Jimmy McInerney did. And Kyle was really referencing a lot of Brian Daly for for getting those scenes right. What really, I think, struck me about the radio dramas was what a different medium it is for storytelling. You know, uh, working in games is so different than working in animation and film and, and working in radio is so different than even working in games. It did lead me into voiceover in certain certain ways with Smuggler's Gambit. I've done about a dozen audiobooks. For anyone that's interested, they could just look up David W. Collins on audio Audible and they'll they'll find a bunch of audiobooks that I've read. And and I reference these things all the time in terms of doing different characters. You know, because you're trying to do characters on mic and how do you make them sound different and compelling? And and it's funny you brought up the John Lithgow thing because I remember thinking if you just approach a character by doing a vocal trick it's not necessarily as compelling as when you're honest 
dramatically. It comes yeah. off as thin and surface. Like you can feel the audience sort of glancing off of your performance because there's nothing underneath that surface for them to get their toes wet in. But one of the things that like, say, looking at Perry King as an example of here's someone that chose a direction that was really strong, was able to make Han Solo his own and was not trying to pull off a mock Harrison Ford. Uh, it's ironic that I'm saying this, but <laughs> he could have been eaten alive for that. You know, so he decided, well, as I'm going to do my own thing. And if I do my own thing, I'm going to interpret it in a way that I think works with Mark Hamill and Anne Sachs and just try and do the spirit of Han Solo the way that a different actor would play Hamlet or, or something like that. You know, I have to make it my own, you know, and if you make something your own and you're honest, it's going to be a lot better than if you, a lot of voice actors are like, well, it's about doing funny voices and like someone like Dee Bradley Baker will actually tell you that is the last thing you should be worried about. It's acting at its core and the radio dramas are a great example of that. You know, when there are great performances in there that stray from the movie, they actually really work. David W. Collins, any other parting words, any other things you want us to, uh, to pay attention to? For those of you who are going to Star Wars Celebration, we are doing another radio drama, uh, Smuggler's Bounty, I believe we're, we're calling it. And with something that Kyle and F.J. DeSanto and I and a couple of others have been working on now for, for a while. Uh, really, we've been talking about it ever since we did the first one. And uh, for those of you who get a chance, I, I'd love for you to check it out. And I'm sure we'll have a recording made available later. And uh, People should check out Smuggler's Gambit. Uh, I was there at Celebration when you guys did it the first time. And it was just, it was a really good time. And that was a very nerve-wracking night because I remember not knowing if people were going to like it or not. And it turned out to be like, the love for radio dramas is so intense that it actually, I think, surprised everyone. That kind of leads to my last question for you guys. I want to see the prequels. I did once in like, I want to say like 2002, 2003, tried to make an Attack of the Clones radio drama adaptation just to see if I could work it into a script and then maybe someday, you know, produce it on my own and release it to the wilds of the internet and see if it could, you know, go viral or something. And I got like two chapters in, you know, two episodes and I was like, like this, is, this is hard. Not only is this hard, I'm like, this is never going to work. I'm, I do not have the ability to produce these things. Like, it took them like three months to produce the Star Wars radio dramas and that's with all of those resources at hand. And it was like me, a copy of Cool Edit Pro and then a bunch of sound effects that I had ripped from the uh, VHS tapes. I'm like, I'm not going to be able to do this. Even if I was able to find legitimate actors to come into my bedroom <laughs> and hang out in my bedroom studio and record this audio. It's not, so I just put it away. We have talked about this. Yeah. We have talked about this extensively. Too early to really kind of give anything away, but I, I will say that, you know, it has been talked about. It is something that, you know, a lot of people think is a great idea because it's an awesome idea. I will point out that uh, logistically, the cast of the prequels is like 50 times bigger than the cast of the original trilogy. Mm -hmm. in terms yeah. of the, the sheer number of characters that you have to do. I mean, there's just so many characters, even in The Phantom Menace alone. Well, you know? and, and the question is, who do you get to, to write that? And who do you get to adapt the prequels in the way that Brian Daly adapted the original trilogy? Because that's, you kind of want to keep with that tradition. And like, how much do you build out? What I'm, do you I'm, build out? You I'm know? proposing a writing duo, Brian <laughs> Young and Kyle Newman. <laughs> <laughs> Kyle's a, a prequel fanatic and, and uh, has been very interested in doing stuff like that. So we're hoping that with Smuggler's Bounty and Smuggler's Gambit and some of these other things that uh, there'll be a renewed interest of the radio dramas on full display at Celebration, especially in front of Disney. If anyone wants to see more radio dramas, like come and support this thing, you know, and, and be vocal about it because, I mean... Really, this is Kyle Newman's brainchild. I mean, and, uh, you know, I've just been really, really lucky to be a part of it. And uh, everyone wants to see more. And the prequels would just be such an obvious thing to hit. Maybe not obvious on the Force Awakens schedule that we're on right now in 2015, but somebody's got to do it. That's what I, I like to hear. hear. All right. Well, we should probably get out of here. This has been a long and fun episode. And David, please, uh, if at any point you want to come back, just let us know. The door is always open. Again, listeners, if you haven't already added Star Wars Oxygen to your playlist, you need to. Like, It's probably some of the best in-depth analysis of Star Wars, period. And I don't just mean Star Wars music. I mean 
you guys manage to get at some of the more interesting bits of the mythology and the creative process just by walking backwards from John Williams's music. It's one of the best ends to the creative process with regards to Star Wars that I've ever heard, period. And plus, the technical way you and your keyboard sort of break down how the music works. Well, thank you very much. I'm, uh, it's, it's funny. I'm sitting in the same room that I normally... Uh, I, I, no, I really, really appreciate you saying that. And we could do the same thing for the radio dramas. Um, but, I, you know, Oxygen takes me all month to yeah. prepare the next episode. You know, it's truly a, a labor of love. And I can't tell you how grateful I am that everyone seems to be really, really digging it. So, yeah. And so the next episode, uh, you guys are diving full bore into episode one, The Phantom Menace, correct? Our first Phantom Menace episode released last week, and it, it was all about Duel of the Fates. And it's funny how fans of the classic trilogy have really embraced Oxygen. And I was thinking, well, you know, are the prequels, is the show going to take like a numbers hit or something? And honestly, it's been the opposite. The show is just exploding. And I've gotten so many, so much great response about uh, the prequels. People love the prequel music. Well, that seems to be like the, the common ground that uh, original trilogy devotees and prequel fans can seem to meet on is that the prequel music, even if you don't like the movie that it's attached to, the music is great. Like you can't argue with John Williams's work on those three movies. You really can't. And, and my hope is, and always, you know, on I'm sure I'm in good company when I say this. The reason we do these podcasts is because we appreciate the movies and the franchise so much. And, and I always just want to do something that is going to enhance the viewing experience of the movies for people in, in new and different ways. And I think that however people approach the prequels, John Williams is a very safe place to explore the prequels. And, uh, and so, you know, definitely check it out. That's good work that needs to be done as someone who goes around rubbing it in everybody's faces how much I like the prequels. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so uh, Brian Young, is there uh, anything that you want to tell the the listeners about before we bail out of here? No. Okay, that's good. All right, so for for Brian Young uh, and for David W. Collins, I am Bobby Roberts. May the Force be with you, always. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.